Good morning, friends. Hello. Welcome to church today. It's good to be with you and everyone that's joining us online, Spring Breakers, good morning to you. I'm glad you can be with us uh, this morning. We're continuing our series, He is Greater, which is a walk through the book of Hebrews this morning. And since I was skipping church last week to spring break with my family, and this is my first shot at Hebrews, I just want to share a little bit with you about why I'm excited to be uh, taking this journey with you. Three reasons uh, I'm excited about Hebrews. First of all, Uh, I don't know if there are many other places in the Bible that help us to read our whole Bibles the way that Hebrews does. Uh, Tim Porter shared last week, I believe, that uh, our best understanding is that this letter was originally written to Jewish Christians in the first century. And so part of what it's doing is helping uh, Jewish Christians read their Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, in light of Jesus. And so I don't know how many other places we could go where we get the chance to learn to read the whole Bible as one unified story that leads to Jesus the way that we do in Hebrews. That also means, though, if you are brand new here, okay, you just walked in, a friend invited you this morning or something, and you are new to the Bible, Hebrews is a really challenging study, okay? And I just want to encourage you, if you're new, if you're just checking things out, we're going to do our very best to explain what's going on. In our reading today, for example, just a scripture reading today, uh, Hebrews is going to quote the Old Testament seven times and then allude to it at least two other times. We're going to do our best to explain those things as we go and bring you along for the ride. But if you don't have a Bible yet in a, you know, an English translation that you can make sense out of, I encourage you, grab the Bible from under the chair in front of you Make it your own, write your name in it, write all over it, keep some notes in it, bring it back next week and we'll just keep going, okay? But if you have any questions, even if this is your first time here, if you have questions about what you're hearing, we would love to follow up with you and talk with you. You just reach out to us, okay? Second reason I'm excited to study Hebrews is uh, it's an incredibly relevant and challenging word for the context that we live in today. Again, uh, Tim mentioned last week, it's likely that this letter was written to Christians living in Rome, uh, an enormous multicultural city where people from all walks of life came together and worshipped all kinds of gods and things like that. Even if that guess is wrong, okay, it's possible that it wasn't written to Rome, even if that guess is wrong, it's, it's really likely that this was written to some other major metropolitan area, one of these melting pots where people come together. And we call that uh, melting pot pluralism. You ever heard that word, pluralism? We live in a pluralistic society, uh, which means you can come to the United States, whoever you are, whatever gods you bring with you, come and you're free to worship, pray, and practice your religion as you see fit. And the state is not going to put its hand on the scales in anybody's favor. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. But living in a, so, so I'm, I'm pro-pluralism, okay? The, the freedom to worship according to your conscience is a tremendous gift and one that we should advocate for, not just for ourselves, but for everyone living around us. But living in a pluralistic society uh, where you get to rub shoulders with people from all different walks of life naturally begs the question then, How can there be just one true faith? Okay, so as you get to know people and you discover they're actually nicer than you and they worship someone else, it's got to beg the question, right? Uh, 
how can we be right? How can there, isn't it, you know, isn't it just a little condescending to try to convert people to your way of thinking? Do Christians really believe that other people are just dumb, that they haven't done their homework, that they believe X, Y, or Z, but they haven't really thought it through? Isn't it uh, just a little narrow-minded to think that there's really only one way to relate to God? Well, questions like these, which we all have, okay, if you're a thinking person, you've thought some of these things through. Questions like these are, go beyond pluralism to something called universalism. Okay, so pluralism says that everyone should be free to worship according to their conscience. Universalism goes further to say that's because all religions are the same and lead to the same outcome. There's different kinds of universalism as well. So a hard universalism or a hard universalist is someone who would say, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or what you believe, everyone will make it to heaven someday. Okay, so Stalin and Hitler and child molesters and, you know, okay, fill in your favorite bad guys. Everybody makes it. If there is a hell at all, it would be temporary at best. Now that's um, more consistent, but a lot less palatable. You're not going to meet a lot of hard universalists because most of us still want somebody to get their just desserts, okay? I don't know where you would draw the line, uh, but someone, I mean, there have to be some things that are just too evil uh, to escape from. So the vast, vast majority of Americans are what I would call soft universalists, okay? And I'm gonna make up some statistics this morning because it's something I excel at. So I did not research this. This is just my hunch. Has everybody got that? This is just my hunch. If you go home and Google this and find out I'm wrong, I don't need to know. Okay, I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to say that something like 90% of Americans are soft universalists. Uh, and 99.9% .9 of our celebrities are, are soft universalists. And I would say that probably a majority of Christians are actually soft universalists. A soft universalist is someone who would say, uh, unless you're a monster, you go to heaven. I mean, if you've done your best, you, you've tried your hardest, it would help if you went to church or something, okay? It would be nice if you loved the poor. Those would all be really good things. But basically everyone, as long as you're well-meaning and sincere in what you believe, everyone makes it. God will get you home. Now, we're not going to get into all of that today, okay? But I share that to say that every, these are the most important questions in the world. What happens when we die? And what, you know, heaven and hell kinds of questions are the most important questions in the universe. And Hebrews is a great place to wrestle through those questions. Uh, which brings me to my third reason for being excited about Hebrews, and that is that reading Hebrews is like opening the mail from another universe. Uh, I don't know if you've read it recently, but next to Revelation, next to the book of Revelation, the book of Hebrews is the most like reading the mail from another universe. Its perspective is just so radically different than our own. 
Uh, it's, it's jarring. Hebrews is jarring in its effect. Uh, even just the scripture reading we're going to do here in chapter 1 and chapter 2, if I teach it correctly, should make your head spin a little bit. If you don't leave today saying, I, I probably didn't do my job, okay? It, it's, it's startling. For people living in a context where soft universalism is just the air that we breathe, and it isn't challenged much, we're not asked to reflect on these things much, Hebrews brings a perspective that is startling. And part of its mission is to, uh, is to assure Christians, to reassure Christians, and to keep Christians in the love of God. And the way that it does that is to pull back the veil a little bit to help us to see what we cannot see right now. Uh, when Hebrews talks about spiritual reality, you know, it's right here. When we think about spiritual things, if we think about them at all, it, you know, the spiritual realm is sort of, you know, it's up there, it's in heaven, it's a little detached from where we are. We're not even sure the prayers are getting through, you know, do they make it any higher than the ceiling, that kind of thing. Hebrews brings a perspective that, that makes spiritual reality right in front of your face. So next week, for example, I think, I don't know, you know, I think we're going to spend a lot of time teaching about angels. When is the last time you heard a sermon about angels? Well, we get to do that in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is one of the places that teaches, I think, uh, most clearly about the church in heaven. That our loved ones who have died in Christ can see what's happening here. They know what's going on. Hebrews is one of the few places that explains what happened in heaven when Jesus died and what that means for us now. Hebrews is the book that, that says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's kind of a famous definition of faith. Hebrews brings assurance and helps to keep us in the love of God by sort of <laughs> shaking us awake. This last week, my family and I, you know, I already church last week to take my kids to a skiing resort and it was it was a sobering reminder being there first of all that I can't ski but that's besides the point but that Darcy and I who are a lot like you have it within our power we have the resources at our disposal to distract ourselves every weekend if we wanted to. We have it within our power to distract ourselves to the point where we never need to think about these things if we didn't want to. We have it within our power to distract our children so much that they never need to think about heaven or hell. We could keep them so busy and so entertained the thoughts of heaven and hell and Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and the world to come need never enter their minds. We could make this home. We have the power to do that. And Hebrews comes along, okay? Wakey, wakey. This is not all that there is. There's another world. It is right here. And it is the real thing. 
It is what you are passing. It will last forever. You will die. It will never die. You are leaving. It is thing. You know what I mean? So welcome to Hebrews. Our scripture reading this morning with all that in mind is from the book of Acts. No, I'm just kidding. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, starting in verse 3. Why don't you turn with me? Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be on page 1001 this morning. If you want to borrow a Bible, uh, it's there under the chairs in front of you. Page 1001. If, again, if you're brand new to the Bible, you're going to notice as you look at that page, a lot of the words are offset a little bit. Those are Old Testament scripture references. And just so you know how your Bible works, okay, you'll notice teeny tiny little letters next to each one. Those are footnotes for you, okay? So if you're wondering... Where's, the, where's he getting all this stuff from? You can find it uh, in the footnotes there. Okay, is everybody there? I gave you time. Everybody there? Hebrews chapter 1? See, I got it? All right, thanks for being awake. Here we go. Hebrews 1. We're going to pick up in the second half of verse 3. This is where we left off last week. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies <clears throat> a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the heart of our scripture reading, if you just would keep your Bibles open for a moment, the heart of the scripture we just read is a contrast between two messages and two messengers. It's there in chapter 2, verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The message declared by angels is a reference to the founding of Israel back in the book of Exodus. 
So back in the book of Exodus, God rescued and redeemed Israel out of slavery and then brought them to Mount Sinai. And there he, he came and visited with them. There was fire, smoke, lightning, the sound of blaring trumpets. The ground trembled in God's presence. It's an awesome scene if you want to read it on your own sometime. And together, God and Israel entered into this covenant, this agreement. They would be his people. He would be their God. And then God provided them with a place to meet with him, and then all of these rituals and sacrifices so that they could safely draw near and be in his presence. Everything that they would need for that time to be in relationship with God, he provided for them through the law and this covenant. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 33 adds that when that happened, it happened in the presence of tens of thousands of angels. So angels, this is Deuteronomy 33, 2. Angels were not only present, but were actually involved somehow in the creation of this covenant. Acts chapter 7, verse 53 says the angels delivered that covenant. Galatians 3.19 says that angels put the covenant into place. And then we just read here in Hebrews 2 that, the, that angels are the ones who declared it. Okay, so just like a president has a cabinet and a king has a royal court and they dispatch messengers hither and thither with, you know, all these different things, God uses angels in a similar way. Uh, we see that. We get a flavor of it anyway in verse 14. Aren't angels all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So God's covenant with Israel was put into place by angels. And there's no question that it was good. You can see that in verse 2 as well. It proved to be reliable, it says. We could add this morning, it did what it was supposed to do. The law of God cannot save you. It is not meant to save you, but the message declared by angels highlighted our need for grace, our desperate need for grace, and prepared the way for the Savior who was to come. It is not, the message declared by angels was not the full or final word of God. What is, class, if you were here last week, what is the full and final word of God? We, we read about it last week. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago and in many times and ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God has spoken a final word, and it is greater than the law of Moses or any other word out there, and that word is the Son. And this time, God did not send messengers to put it in place. This time, God himself has come in the Son. And everything that follows then in chapter 1, all these Old Testament references, are just there to help you see why this final word is so awesome and cannot be ignored. So let's just walk through it real, real quick, okay? Chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That the right hand of God signifies his power and his triumph and his authority. Jesus shares in God's sovereignty over the world. He says in verse 4, 
the name that Jesus has inherited is more excellent than that of the angels. In a, in a Roman context, receiving the family name meant that someone has finally come into his inheritance. We still, you know, today we would say a young man or young woman has kind of come into her own. You know, she's, she's become what she was always meant to be. Well, Jesus was crucified for sin, in dishonor and shame. Now he's taken his rightful place as the head of the human family and as the sovereign king of the universe. He says in verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And that's from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm 2 is a song about the Messiah. It talks about how the king of Israel will inherit all the nations and will rule all the world. It, it's a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would be a blessing to all the earth. Well, that's happened in Jesus. He goes on, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's a quote from 2 Samuel 7.14. That's where God promised David there would always be one of his sons on the throne of Israel and that that son would build a house for the Lord that would last forever. Well, Jesus is the answer to those promises too. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. That's from Deuteronomy 32. It says that angels worship Jesus. Okay, here's why that matters. Because who are you allowed to worship, class? You, you can worship God. You don't get to worship anybody else. And angels know that better than anybody. There's this scene in the la very last chapter of the Bible where John is like totally overwhelmed with what he's seeing in the book of Revelation and he bows down to worship the angel. The angel says, hey, knock it off. Don't, I'm just a servant like you. We only worship God. And here Hebrews is saying they worship Jesus. Okay, the fourth reference, verse 7, the fourth reference is from Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is this really long, beautiful psalm that celebrates God's sovereign control of all of nature. And Hebrews is just saying, just the way that Jesus controls the wind and the elements of nature, he, that's what he does with the angels. He just tells them, you go here and you go there. Fifth reference, verses 8 and 9. This one is really interesting. It's Psalm 45. In its original context, Psalm 45 is about like the ideal man, the ideal king. He loves righteousness and truth. He's clothed in splendor and majesty. Uh, he's a victorious in battle. Well, Hebrews, he takes part of that psalm and he says of the son, he's God. Okay, look at verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Okay? And then in the next sentence, he says, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. Okay? So the Son is God, and he's been anointed by God. Okay, figure that one out. So this is why Christians have always said that, that the human and divine nature come together in the Lord Jesus. He is the Son. 
Six references, uh, verses 10 through 12. This is Psalm 102, and it's about the eternal aspect of the Son. He's eternal. He has no beginning. He will have no end. Creation is going to wear out like a garment. It's going to be rolled up like a, a robe. But Jesus will never change. Uh, it's becoming popular in, in certain circles to, uh, sort of to, to talk about Jesus in really, really awesome ways, okay? Really amazing ways, but to talk about him in kind of a, a pantheistic way. So pantheism takes the divine and nature and just kind of puts them together. So God is the tree, he is in the rock, he is, you know, they become blended. There's this, uh, it's especially popular in progressive Christian circles, this idea of a cosmic Christ who's more of a force or a principle in the universe that governs all things. And the way they talk about it is awesome, okay? It's amazing. But that's not what's being taught here. What's being taught here is that the Son is the creator, that he was before creation and he will have no end. There's never been a time when the sun was not, and there's never going to be a time when the sun will not be. There's all kinds of interesting things happening in the way that people talk about Jesus right now. And I understand because, it, you know, this is hard to put together. Some people talk about Jesus as though he's, you know, he's the special revelation of God, but he's, he's not God. God is in Jesus, or the fullness of God is in Jesus, but... Uh, you know, his divinity just consists in his moral union with God and all these other kinds of things. Here's, here's just one quote from, from one author. Every human is potentially a son of God, but the union was most complete in Jesus. The humanity of God and the divinity of man is the essence of the Christian revelation. That sounds super cool, okay? But no, no. No, you're, you're not God. You're not going to be God. Okay, that's off the table. And Jesus isn't just a human who attained divinity or something, okay? That, look, at, look at what Hebrews is saying. He had no beginning. He's not going to have any end. He has all the attributes of God. This is from the Nicene Creed. So this is what has united Christians for, I don't know, almost 2,000 years, says we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father by whom all things were made. What's not clear about that? Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. That's a joke, everybody. <laughs> the seventh, seventh and final reference is to Psalm 110. It's probably the most famous because Jesus himself quoted uh, from this psalm in the Gospels. There's this place in the story of the Gospels where uh, it, Jesus is coming to the end of his life and the religious leaders are trying to nail him down and they keep peppering him with all these really, really difficult questions and he answers them all and finally it says, and they just gave up and no one wanted to ask him anything anymore so he finally asks a question. 
And he quotes Psalm 110, and he says to, to, to those listening, he says, why do people say that the Christ will be David's son, and yet David says he will be Lord? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Why, does, why do you think that is? Hmm. And then, of course, he doesn't answer his own question. He just moves on. The point is that God has spoken a full and final word. And this time, God has not dispatched a messenger. But he has come in the Son himself. And that means that this time, the word is final. This is the final word of God. What angels brought to Moses was good, but external. It was true, but it was limited. It was real, but it was earthly. It was sincere, but only temporary. All of the sacrifices and the tabernacle and the priests and the robes and the washing and the feast days and so forth, it was never actually about those things. They were a shadow of someone to come. They were preparation for a truer and greater tabernacle, truer and greater robes, a truer and greater priest, a truer and greater feast that is coming, a truer and greater washing that was coming. What the Son brought is so much greater that how shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation? The problem for them and the problem for us is that at present, most of this or all of this is waiting for us with Jesus in heaven. And we can't see it. We're being, we're being asked to trust in someone in something that we can no longer put our hands on. And, and so this, this is the challenge of Hebrews. It's written to people who are considering a return to the old covenant that was put in place by angels, first of all, because it was a little safer, okay? Judaism experienced some protection under Roman law, so that's part of it. But what's in view here is that you could see so much. I mean, there, there is a lot of comfort in having, you know, a, in, in getting to see a priest offer a tangible sacrifice and then verbally absolve you of sin. You don't need to cultivate a longing for a world you can't see. You don't need to cultivate in your heart a hope in things unseen. And Hebrews wants to help us do that. Verse one, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Okay, he's talking about that body of truth regarding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we've talked about in recently in recent months. We have to listen. We, we don't get to see it the way they did in the Old Covenant, and so we have to pay attention to what we've heard. And if we don't, he says, we'll drift. Okay, you see that in verse 1? If we don't, we will drift. How do you drift? It's not hard. Just stop paying attention, okay? And, you know, make... Has anyone else ever dropped an anchor off a fishing boat and forgot to tie it off? <laughs> Bloop! Oh, 
and the next, you know, 10 minutes later, you're 50 yards downstream just because you just weren't focused. You just took your eye off the ball, so to speak. That's how you drift. Drift happens, okay? There's nothing particularly insidious there, but in the larger context of Hebrews, drifting means he's talking to people who have not yet really firmed up their heavenly hope. Okay, they've not cultivated in their hearts a longing for that which they cannot see, but only what they've heard about. That's why they're being drawn back into the old covenant. Now the thing is, little do they know, okay, at the time of this writing, it's only a few years from the time when the temple, the robes, the priests, the sacrifice will be completely demolished forever by Rome. They don't know it when they get this letter and they're being, they're being drawn back to this thing that they can see, this tangible earthly system. They don't know it, but the clock is ticking. And within just a few years, it'll be gone anyway. That is exactly our situation. That is exactly the situation we live in. We of all people, okay, St. Croix Valley denizens, with all the comforts of life, more than anyone would be tempted to say, this is great, this is home. And all the while, it's tick, 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 tick. It will be gone before you know it. So we must pay attention to what we've heard, for if the message declared by angels was reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What does that word neglect uh, mean there? It, it's, um, it, it'd be easier to tell it in a story. So actually Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 22 where he uses the exact same word in Greek to, to describe what neglecting salvation looks like. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells a parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. That wedding feast is always a picture of the coming salvation in the kingdom of God, okay? And he sent his servants to all those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready Come. No attention. That's the same Greek word as neglected. They neglected the message and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. What is Jesus saying? What is Hebrews saying? That some invited to the banquet were found to be unworthy because they neglected the summons. This is a tremendous, tremendous challenge for soft universalists. Some who were invited were found unworthy not because they were awful people. 
not because they hated God, not because they hated Christianity, because they just didn't care. They just had other things to do. The Gospel of Luke tells the same parable and actually makes the people in the story even more polite. One of them says to the master, I just bought a piece of land and I gotta go look at it, would you excuse me? And another says, I just got married. And they're destroyed in the parable. We're not talking about Hitler or Stalin. We're talking about people who just have other things to do. Most of us are probably not drawn to pursue peace with God through the old covenant with Israel. Okay, that's, that's probably not a huge temptation in our context, but we are very much in danger of seeking to find our peace in the things of this world. More maybe than any other generation that has lived, we have it within our power to distract ourselves from the thing that matters most more than anyone has ever been able to do. Just, just take the message of angels and replace it with self-actualization or consumerism and take angels and replace it with marketing. And that's exactly where we live. Drifting is a failure to anchor our hearts in a hope that we cannot see, but we must find a way. I was thinking this week, I, so I'm skiing, well, I'm trying to ski with my family and just spending time with people on the slopes and ran into f- people from Hudson while we were up there and just all this other stuff. And I just had this image come to my mind of a kid I used to play basketball with. He, uh, we were in seventh grade, and he was not very good, but he was big. So he was probably the first or second man off the bench, and he got some playing time just because he could stand in the blocks and do whatever he wanted, except score, because he was terrible. But I remember one time he, he caught an inbounds pass at half court and turned around, and to his amazement, the whole court just cleared out. And he just took off like a shot toward the basket. He dribbled down and missed the layup. And everyone's cheering and screaming, oh, yay. So he gets his own rebound, and he shoots again, and he misses again. There's nobody around him. He pulls down the rebound like he's LeBron James. And he goes up a third time, and he, he makes it. He turns around, he begins to run down the court, and that's when he realizes he's shooting in the wrong basket. <laughs> I, can't, I can't think of a better metaphor for our lives in the St. Croix Valley. We are so excited about our things and about our hard work and haven't we earned a great retirement and aren't, aren't things going well and et cetera, et cetera. And God is like, you, you're shooting in the wrong basket, man. You have, we are able in our context to miss the most important thing in the world. And that should terrify you. He says, in the, in the 
message put in place by angels, punishments fit the nature of the crime. That's a fundamental principle of the law of Moses, that the punishment should fit the crime. That's why he says, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. And he goes on to say, so this is justice. That to know what the Son has done and to know who he is and then to yawn and to say, you know, I'm just really busy is so reprehensible. It is so evil that we will be damned for that. This is of the utmost importance. Jesus is greater and he is the full and the final word of God. And we have to listen. If we neglect this salvation, how will you escape? We look around the world today, it seems so real, so solid, so sure. Tick, 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 tick. It's dying. You are dying right now. Everything you love, everything you've surrounded yourself with, it is all going to perish. Just, just like the temple and the robes and the priest and the whole system, they were tempted to trust in. Everything you're tempted to trust in is dying as we sit here. How will you escape? And Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and they call to you. They invite you, come, just come. All it takes is for you to come and you will have everything your heart is longed for. How do we do that? How do we cultivate a longing for our true home? I don't know that I have a, a ton of great answers for you today. I, I'm gonna tell you how it's going in my house. I wake up every day and I come around the corner to my living room and there's a picture of my son, my child every day and I remember this is not home as good as today may be I am just passing through and this is not what I'm living for this is not what we're living for it's easier to do this when you're in pain by the way people with cancer and divorce and dead loved ones and pain there is a lot of mercy mingled with that that we know every day how fragile and brief life is that does not mean however that if life is going well for you the kids are doing well everyone's there that does not mean that you can't live with an awareness of the greatness and the majesty of God so my question as we wrap up is just how are you going to cultivate in your heart a longing for what is real and what will last? Let me invite you to just stand. We'll pray together before we sing this morning. Let me invite you right where you are, whoever you are, would you just pray? Would you just ask God to meet with you?
to teach you how to cultivate that longing for your home. Maybe you're here this morning, you have never uh, turned to God in repentance and faith. I invite you to just say to him this morning, I have done my own thing for too long. I am choosing to trust in the sun this morning. Would you just say that right now? I have set the Lord always before me. He is my rock and my shield. Father, would you come and teach us to love what is greatest and to cultivate our hope in that which we cannot see. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.